0: Hello listeners, Nestor and I are thinking of all of you wondering when, where, how we'll all meet each other again and if we'll be lucky enough to tell another live story on stage. With that, we wanted to let you know our podcast is part of the Outlier Podcast Festival Virtual Summit this month. On Wednesday, May 13 at 8pm Eastern Time, you can catch our one-hour show and live podcast recording for information on tickets, please visit Outlier Podcast Festival's website at outliercs.com. And now, here's another episode.
1: From the 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories a Storytelling Show, this is Immigration Stories with Nestor Gomez.
0: Stories and Conversations with Immigrants, Refugees, Second-Third Generations, and Allies, where we explore the ideas, policies, and histories that forge national identity, community, and belonging in America. We are your hosts, Angel Ling and Nestor Gomez. As I reflect on my experience... During our collective shelter-in-place order, I often find myself thinking about the disruptions to our old way of life and wondering what the world we re-enter one day might look like and if we have to negotiate a new normal. So what is it like for those around the world where travel restrictions and economic limitations circumscribe their daily existence and political sovereignty and self-determination cannot be taken for granted. This episode takes us to that world away, to the West Bank. First, here's comedian Susie Afridi's story as told on stage for 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories on November 25th, 2018 at the Caveat in Manhattan.
1: So people often ask me where I'm from, and the answer depends on what I think their politics are because the word Palestine is a conversation starter yeah. or, or ender. I mean, it's, the subject is so polarizing that if it comes up at your dinner party, you know that dinner party is just going downhill really fast. But to me, it's, it's not about politics or whose side you take at demonstrations. It's about the three bedroom stone house in Jericho where I grew up. It's about the veranda where my parents sat every morning. I'd be getting ready for school. I'd iron my sky blue uniform. I'd run to the kitchen and make a Lebanese sandwich. I don't know if you guys know, Lebanese is like Greek-strained yogurt that is thick enough to put in a pita pocket. I'd ask my grandfather for the time, and then I'd triple-check my homework, and then my sister and I would be off to school. When we weren't at school, we would be running around my mom's farm, like little cage-free Palestinian chickens. We attended this really small Catholic school. It was run by polite nuns from Malta. And then um, after school, I would come home and grab something to eat, and then I'd go back outside, and I would just memorize my lessons. I would walk around this like little brick lane between the house and the garden, and sometimes I would sit under a clementine tree and just eat until my belly ached. And I would only go inside after dark. The next day... I would sit on the veranda again, listening in to my parents' conversations, which were always peppered with serious words, like words like permit and military ruler. Because you couldn't, in the West Bank, you couldn't get anything done without a permit from the military ruler. And uh, they would always be drinking Turkish coffee. Now that is something my father taught me how to make. Six spoons of coffee, three spoons of sugar. You mix it and you put it on the fire And you let it come to an almost boil over. And then you remove it, and then you put it back on the fire, and again you let it come to an almost boil over. You're trying to get like a froth. And you continue to tease it until it's ready. And that represents the political situation in the West Bank of my childhood, basically. (laughs) Things would come to an almost boil over, and then the Americans would step in and arrange a handshake on the White House lawn between whichever men led the Arabs and the Israelis at the time. So during one of these almost boil overs, we suddenly moved to San Jose, California. And by suddenly, I mean suddenly, like, it was the middle of the school year, we didn't pack and ship anything. The only thing we shipped was my grandfather. (laughs) We sent him like a little earlier. And our life in San Jose was the total opposite of our life in Jericho. My parents bought a three-bedroom, low-ceiling stucco house near the train tracks. My sister Jane and I were dumped in in a terrible high school. We didn't have him for an ESL teacher. (laughs) And polite nuns were replaced with often drunk teachers. And I stopped taking Lebanese sandwiches after Kelly Swanson said to me one day in front of everyone, why are you eating lotion? (laughs) And then one day in biology class, my sister Jane decides to tell everyone that there's no way dinosaurs existed because we didn't study about them in our Catholic school. And of course, Kelly hears this and teases us for the rest of our high school years. She would jump out in front of us and make dinosaur sounds and say, I saw a dinosaur today. Did you see one? And then she would tell everyone, can you believe they've never heard of dinosaurs? And I personally did not care that we didn't learn about dinosaurs. I was upset that these kids like, did not come to school to learn. There was one girl in biology class who was putting makeup on and curling her eyelashes. And I asked my mom, I said, I said why did you bring us here? Kids don't come to learn. They come to mates. <laughs> I missed my school, I missed the nuns, I even missed the occupation. And to top it off, my parents, as if overnight, they just became my grandparents. They, they stopped working outside the house, and they became these sick old people who needed to be taken to doctors and hospitals. And they stopped parenting. My, my brother was allowed to drop out of school. My sister Jane and I gained 40 pounds each... Uh, It was just, I hated what America did to my family. And I blamed my mom because it was her idea to move us. It was, the best way I can describe it is that it was like a really, really bad breakup, but it wasn't any type of breakup. It was a breakup with my childhood and my homeland. And there's no mixtape for that. (laughs) 10 years after we moved, my dad died of diaspora. I think it's a thing, as, as she explained. And um, we stayed in the stucco house until my brother gambled it away. He just gambled the whole thing away. And my mom had to move into senior housing. But right around that time, I fell in love with a Muslim. And my family made it very hard for me, because they're Christian. And they threatened to disown me, actually. It was very hard. Somehow, I did it. And now now I joke about it. And I say that I married a Muslim, and no one died. But looking back at that time, I realized that they were so unfair to me because I, here I am, I'm marrying a good man, and they said I brought shame to the family. And my brother was gambling away our home. I mean, I remember loan sharks would come and replace his car tires with bricks to warn him, and that didn't bring them shame. And, and, and so the, I carried I, all of this resentment with me. like It added to my resentment, but I, I didn't really resolve it. I just sort of carried it with me, like the extra 40 pounds. And so uh, soon after we got married, we moved to Dubai. And I thought, OK, here's my chance to resolve my homesickness. And I can recreate my childhood home. But of course, trying to find Jericho in Dubai is like trying to find small town America in Times Square. <laughs> it's not going to work. And so we, uh, my husband got a job in New York. And we moved to New York. And here I am, like a Palestinian mom on the Upper West Side. I know it's just me and the halal cart guys, <laughs> <laughs> and um, we were moving into our apartment, and I see the nameplate on uh, the apartment next door, and I got so excited because it read Renee Karam, and I told my husband, I'm like, oh my god, she must be Lebanese. I imagined these long chats over Turkish coffee with her, and as I'm having my fantasy, my husband unrolls the 30-year-old nameplate. And Renee Karam is Irene Kramer. <laughs> so, needless to say, she became my son's loving Jewish grandmother. She was amazing. <laughs> so one summer, I decided to go to um, the West Bank. I have to stop myself from saying back home. And um, it was—I was so surprised that people recognized me. There was a man in the town market that said, "You must be Mary's daughter." And I thought, "Wow! I lived in San Jose for 15 years, and no one remembers me." In America you have to you know achieve something or make a sex tape to be remembered. <laughs> in Jericho you just have to exist. And so I found my childhood home I knocked on the door the lady was kind enough to let me in I had she served me tea and then the neighbor came over and she said she asked me a question that I had never thought of myself. She said I always thought you guys were coming back because you didn't sell anything. You didn't sell your house, you didn't sell the farm, you didn't sell the welding shop. And so this added to my confusion and resentment. So when I came back, I asked my mom. And she said, well, the farm was kind of sold from under us to the settlers. And so nothing really got resolved until a few years later after my mom passed away. I was writing a a eulogy about her. And I found, I came across this letter that she had written to my older siblings around the time that I was 10. And in this letter, she writes... You know the details of her life to them, and she says it's 6:30 in the morning. Your grandfather has already had Turkish coffee, tea, an entire watermelon, and corn, and threw everything on the floor like the rinds and the peels. And she says, I think he's gotten messier in the month that I was gone. Then, and then she tells them about our grades, well, mostly my grades, and um, and she asks about their education because she had two sons in college at the time. And she reminds them of the sacrifices that were made so that they can attend college. And then she gives my sister a prenatal care because she was expecting a baby. But the most telling part from this letter was when she explains that taxation is at its highest and inflation has skyrocketed and that the occupation was making her life really, really difficult because she couldn't sell her produce. Like they wouldn't give her permits and so imagine if you're a farmer and, and all of your work just goes to waste, like your, your work is rotting in, in front of your eyes. And so I, I wish I had read that letter when she was alive because I, I suddenly forgave her and I realized that it's not her fault. This is, I mean, we were basically ethnically cleansed and she did the best she could. But the most important thing that I got from the letter is that I met her as a woman, not just my mom. And this woman was... Attentive and and um, balancing so many responsibilities. I mean, she had her elderly father living with her. She's running a farm. She's aware of every aspect of her six children's lives. And I thought to myself, I admire her and I recognize her. And there she is. I, I can see her now. This is the woman on the veranda. Thank you so much. You guys have been so kind.
0: Here's Susie and I on missing the West Bank of her childhood, and finally finding home wherever she now meets herself.
1: So my mom had passed away in 2017, and I was in a writing workshop at the Y, and I wanted to process that. I wanted to, you know, to to process and and how I felt and. Um, sort of like I wanted and at the same time I was also thinking about like why we moved to America and how the the narrative that we were told at home is that it was my mom's decision and it was such a healing uh, process to to go through it and figure out that it wasn't her fault hmm. it's just that she probably told us that um, so that we don't develop like a victim narrative hmm. uh, and it was really interesting because at the same time I'm also a mom and I'm trying to shape stories in a way where you kind of deliver a lesson without delivering a victim narrative. And that's really hard for people who have been colonized and ethnically cleansed, essentially. It's very hard. And so it was really, really, uh, it was such a, a beautiful process to to tell the story at Nestor's show and to, to write for it. Uh, because it's really, I just find storytelling to be better than therapy because... You edit the narrative, you find the silver lining, and you learn and you move on.
0: So, tell me a little bit about your family. You have six siblings. So, you like kind of told that. Yeah. Um, I'm the, the youngest course. of six. Mm-hmm. And it's really
1: interesting because my parents had three kids in the early 60s. Actually, my oldest sister was born in 59. She, oh, mashallah, she's turning 60 this year. And she turned 60. And so, the three kids in the early 60s. And then. Uh, my mom lost a child somewhere in between the first generation and the second generation because she had three more kids in the early 70s. Like, I'm I, I'm the youngest of the second generation. And so, and at one point, we were living apart. Like, my older sister and my two brothers were living in America, and the the younger three were living in Jericho. And my mom, a couple of summers, had to go to America to establish the green crowd process for us. This is in... Uh, late 70s early 80s i would say early 80s when it was pretty easy for a daughter to sponsor her yeah. mother this is you know what trump calls a chain immigration yes i think now it might not be that easy like i remember being a kid and knowing that i had a like we had a green card um and that's a double-edged sword because you know you have the choice to leave and i think that sometimes that's harder like i remember our neighbor's did not have that and so they stayed and they stuck it through the the intifada the the first uprising the one that was in uh, the late 80s right around the time that we left and when i went back and this added to my confusion when i went back i saw that they thrived they did pretty well they were also a family of sex kids all of them went to college some went to college abroad and but uh, most of them stayed in college um in the west bank and so that's one example that i asked my mom about i said you know what about this family they they stayed and they did pretty well but i think looking back i think it's because they they would have left if they had the choice
0: Hmm. because it
1: was the first intifada was pretty scary because they would just uh the the occupation would collect any young men and put them in jail and there are men who just spent like 16 20 years in jail and it messes you up it's, uh, especially if you're there as a political prisoner. And so my mom was really worried about my brother. And and of course, she believed in education so much. And once the school started shutting down, she was ready to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but then um, when I talked to my oldest brother, who's really the best, I think, storyteller, he said there was also other factors to do with their financial situation. Because when my brothers moved away to America... My dad kind of lost his right-hand man and he wasn't able, you know, um like his financial finances were like became a bit of a mess because you know he had these two sons right by his side they would do everything. My dad designed he wasn't an engineer but he wasn't educated at all. He had to leave school as a young kid to support his family because they were internally displaced during 1948 when the British left. Hmm. They didn't leave peacefully but uh um So, my dad had to leave school at that time and and work, but he was very smart he so he used to design irrigation systems for the farmers in jericho hmm. and um once my brothers left in the early eighties to go to college in America, he kind of like you know we i didn 't know this at the time because I was a kid, I found this later that you know his finances sort of became messy, and when um the intifada hit, it was like you know more than one factor just sort of like forces you to make the move
0: right yeah do you think that like your mom when she decided to kind of up and move because you said that when you met your neighbor right back in Jericho that they said well we thought you were going to come back because you never sold your things yeah do you think that your mom had thought like let's give it a try like you know, like we all have like California dreams and maybe like, yeah, she had a California, not like, like an, a dream to go to America and try it out. And then maybe she was going to go back.
1: No, it is. It's, you know what? It's so funny that you mentioned it specifically has to do with California because my dad, when they were at one point, my parents were living in Kuwait way before I were born. And he was offered to, to come to uh, Texas to work. Mm. But my I had an uncle, my mom's brother, who was living in Texas, and he said, Oh, don't think about it. The weather is horrible. You will hate it. And but when my pa- when my brothers moved, they moved to California. And so when my mom would visit America, it was California. And California is like, you know, the weather oh, is amazing. Yeah. And so my mom was fascinated by America a lot. And you see that in the letter. Um you you know, she writes about like how convenient life is in America. And um and I think that that might have been the case that she thought will will go back once uh, the intifada dies down um which might explain because i was really confused when the when the neighbor said that to me she and it's true we didn't sell the house we didn't sell the the welding shop i know for sure the farm was my parents had leased it and then the greek orthodox church that owned it had kind of sold it without telling them Hmm. to the to an Israeli settler group and this happens a lot that right now there's like uprisings against the church because they own a lot of land mm-hmm. the the Greek Orthodox Church and they they didn't tell my mom so she had invested all this money into fixing the farm and making it you know like you have to invest a lot in a farm for it to produce
0: let's actually explain that a little bit to the listeners because I understand this concept of like both owned land and leased yeah. land whereas in America you there's not this yeah yeah, right.
1: My my parents leased it for like a very reasonable right. amount, and so, so they they thought they had the lease for like a hundred years or something mm-hmm. like that, and they the church did not tell them that they sold it.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: the the issue was that they invested. They got like bulldozers and stuff. It was the they had like produce. Jericho is known for farming, so they had like produce like eggplants, watermelon tomatoes but then they also had a big date farm and that required a huge investment because Mm. you to be able to sell dates you have to really like i remember my mom spending a lot of money on bulldozing the land and stuff and that that she never recuperated because Mm. they told her basically that you have one year left and then it's it's gone but it, it is unfair to the palestinians because they've been there for hundreds of years and all of a sudden they're whatever major asset that they have that generates income is just sold from right. under them. And and in Jerusalem is actually really, there's certain contested areas, like the the farm is in between um, Jericho and Jordan. And so it's an area that, Jericho, there is no settler groups, but I think where the farm is, they're, they're beginning to build. Because um, you know how the settlements are, they're sort of like in the Palestinian areas and they're the biggest obstacle to peace. It's kind of like if you imagine cheese, you know, if you want the state, you have to have like cheddar cheese, like a whole piece of cheese. But if the way it is now, there's holes, there's like Swiss cheese. So right. the, the holes are the settlements. And so you could never have a contiguous Palestinian state. And so because of that, there's no there's no chance of peace. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember my mom being really devastated. But at the same time, you know, she doesn't want to put down the church
0: because you're you're told to sort of like respect the church when you said people remember you back in Jericho, right? When you arrived and they were like, oh, you must be Mary, right? Yeah. Mary's daughter. Yeah. Um. What did that make you, because y- you also kind of said, you also feel like home is still kind of Jericho, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I want to talk a little bit about yeah. what home feels homesickness like. homesickness is such a, like
1: it's, it's like the, I think the only cure to homesickness is art and creating art. Mm. Like if you feel like you're missing home, whatever home is to you, the best solution is to write, create art, do something. And and I remember clearly the feeling I went to the town market and there was a guy selling dates and this guy had aged. And, and, and I just remember thinking his face, the, the texture of his face is the same texture as the dates that he's selling mm. And he automatically said, like, you must be Mary Saccab's daughter because you look just like her. And I thought, you know, that really would never happen in America. People, you know, in a collective society, the people are more important than anything else. Um, America is an individualistic society. And so, you know, it's transient. And, and, and that was just so powerful. And he was so happy that one of us came back uh the year before my brother had gone back, but I don't know if he went there or not um he was just like th- to to think of uh how like happy he was that he saw that somebody came back to jericho mm-hmm. that was that was so sweet and he offered me you know a box of dates and 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 then you know we were just chatting and what I found fascinating about Jericho in general is that it hasn't changed it's a small town, it's a provincial town, I wouldn't call it like But it's not a village. But it hasn't changed at all in the 25 years. Um, A lot of, like, there was this empty lot next to our house. It was still there. And, you know, coming from New York where a shop shuts down, like, overnight, you you wake up and you're like, where's that bagel shop? I used to get bagels from that. It's gone. (laughs) You know, it's such extreme uh, uh, differences. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was just so powerful that uh, he remembered me and, 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 and obviously he didn't remember me as a kid because I was very young, but it's just, you know, the fact that I looked like my mom and the fact that he remembered my mom, uh, it was just so beautiful. And then I, w- I went to visit a couple of my mom's friends. Um, and a lot of people, you know, are, are what I, what I re- learned from my trip after 25 years is that here I am missing my childhood. But when I went back to, to the West Bank, and this is the West Bank after Oslo, and the joke about Oslo, the Oslo peace process, is that it's the peace that ended peace. Hmm. Uh, I I met up with my cousins who were also around my age, maybe a little younger. And I also noticed that they were also homesick. They are homesick for the West Bank of our childhood because things had gotten so much worse since we, since, uh, we were living there. So I realized it's not just me, it's... Everyone there was kind of homesick for the West Bank of the '70s and '80s because this was before. Um, this was yes, it was under the occupation, but it was before Arafat came back and before Oslo, and things were actually better then. Mm. Um, and so that I thought that was really interesting that it wasn't just me. It's like everybody was just kind of homesick for the same. Even the people who were there, they were homesick for that time. One thing I noticed is that things were much much worse mm. than when we were there because there was no no freedom of movement you couldn't go as a Palestinian you can't go to the sea you can't go to the Mediterranean you can't go to the Israeli areas
0: Mm -hmm. and so they were more isolated are you glad that your mom made that decision to uproot to move to California
1: Yes now I am that's that's the beauty of telling a story is that you learn so much when when parents make a decision, they make it with the information that they have, whatever good information they have and i, I think my mom made a smart decision based on information that they have. She didn't know that the Intifada was gonna die down and then mm. um you know uh, uh maybe five years later, Arafat would come back and they would do Oslo. She didn't know any of that, so even though things are peaceful now. Um she just made the decision with the best information that she had. I think in hindsight yes, I am glad that we moved. I I think that it was it was good for us. Yeah, I I think that that's what I what I came out from telling the story. That's what the conclusion that I made was that my mom made the best decision she could. Even though for a long time after we moved, you know, my dad struggled a lot because he didn't speak English. My mom spoke English. Mm-hmm. I think it's very, very hard for old people. I would not recommend a 50 plus year old man to move to America, mm-hmm. uh, because especially if you don't speak English, it's very hard. So he always, he never acculturated or assimilated. My mom did pretty well, um, and so for those 10 years until he died, sometimes the conversation would come up and he would say, I don't know. Again, these are like narratives that you hear in your family, and we're six, so there's a lot of narratives. He would like he would say that, you know, you tricked me and you moved me here. And like, you know, I, I don't know if it was worth it. And so, yeah, for a long time, we weren't sure if it was the right decision. But when I went back and after telling the story, I realized that it was the only decision. She had no choice. Mm-hmm. And she also, when she came the second time to America in the summer, um, she the, the immigration services, because the Palestinians don't have a passport. So she had no passport. She was traveling on the green card. So the immigration services in America said, you can't travel on the green card. Next time you come, it has to be a one-way ticket. You have to move and live here. The green card is an opportunity for you to live in America. You can't just have it and go back and forth. And so she had no choice. We would have lost it. No, and what was interesting is when I went back, I, I saw that my aunt who lives there, my dad's brother, my dad's sister, she had this opportunity, but she kind of let it go. And her kids are kind of resentful mm. uh, towards her about giving up Their the green card. The green card. Yeah. yeah. Because if you don't maintain it, then you lose it. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of paperwork. Like, I remember my mom always having to go to the American embassy in Jerusalem and stand in line. And after she died, we find all these, like, million
0: copies of our birth certificates and our grades and our.
1: And I realized, she, she was on top of everything.
0: Let's talk about that, actually, not having a passport because you're Palestinian. So you have this, like, piece of paper that says you are...
1: It's called uh, laissez passe, which is French for let them pass. Let them pass. Okay. Yeah.
0: And then, so, which countries, like, if you had... Like, let's say you're flying from California. Yeah. And you're trying to visit Palestine. Um, which countries would... Say uh, allow you to do a layover because how many like direct flights are there really in california yeah. right so like how do you how do you actually hold this piece of paper like if you were to arrive in let's say london yeah would they have let you through what about belgium like yeah, yeah I think it's I very remember. different from passport very different this is not something you can travel
1: with we use it only to come to america Mm -hmm. And I remember we flew KLM and we stayed probably in Amsterdam. Um, This is not something that you can, like, it's not like you can come as a Palestinian and live in California for a couple of years with it. It's not a passport because there is no Palestinian state. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just something that you use to travel to actually migrate.
0: Where do you find home in New York City? Um, now, now
1: I, I, so for a long time, I used to think at home is California where my family is, but, um, now I just, I find home, whatever I am. Like, you know, I'm so centered in myself. Like now that I'm in my forties that I find the home is wherever I am. It's like, whatever, you know, I cook a good meal for my family and we have friends over, um, home th- doesn't necessarily, it's not a place. It's a feeling mm-hmm. that you create, Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, and I'm pretty confident in that now. Before I wasn't. Before I would I would look forward to you know going to Pakistan to visit my in-laws, or going to California, uh, but now I've just decided that home is wherever we are.
0: That was New York City-based comedian and storyteller Susie Afridi. Susie was born and raised in Jericho in the West Bank. When she was 14 years old, her family immigrated to San Jose, California. She attended San Jose State University, then pretended to be a tax professional, until her husband decided, on a whim, to move to Dubai. She lived in Dubai for three years. In 2008, the then little family of three moved to New York City. In 2013, she started doing stand-ups, and in 2017, she toured a story with The Moth, and it aired on Valentine's Day the following year. You can find Susie's work under the social media handle Susie says so. Immigration Stories with Nestor Gomez is a production of 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories.
1: More information on 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories can be found on our website nestorgomezstoryteller.com and the show's Facebook page. Please contact us if you have a story you want to share or would like to invite the show to your city or organization near you.
0: Immigration Stories podcast is created, produced by Nestor Gomez and Angel Link. Thank you for listening. Please remember to like and share.